Coming up on episode 19 of Omnivore. Ingredient and flavor trends from this year's IFT First annual event and expo. A major milestone for cultured chicken products. And the impact of weather patterns on food ingredients. This is Omnivore from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by Kelsac. Get the What's Hot and What's Not Global Consumer Cravings Report from Kelsac. Visit kelsac.com slash hot or not and download the free report today. Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. The recent IFT First annual event and expo in July featured more than a thousand exhibitors showcasing the latest in food ingredients and emerging technologies. As our editors navigated the busy expo floor, four ingredient themes stood out as innovation frontrunners, trending toward less is more ingredients, familiar forward flavors, creative sustainability, and next generation health and wellness. Associate Editor Emily Little met up with science and technology editor Julie Larson Brisher and contributing editor Linda Milo Orr after the show to chat about what they saw, what they tasted, and what trends they see making an impact in the coming year. Julie and Linda, I am so excited to talk today about the trends that we saw on the show floor. Yeah, it's great to be here, Em. So let's start with you, Linda. One of our trends was even better, better for you. How did you see the wellness trend evolve this year on the show floor? Consumers have very personalized goals now, like heart health, immunity. Um, and what we see with that tied to the even better for you is that these ingredients and products have multifunctional options. So, for example, bioenergy, if you're looking for more energy, they had um a product with their ribose for energy, but that also added a caramelizing effect in like a plant-based meat. So you're getting two functions out of there. You see energy drinks um, that also promote immunity. So, um, and then another option was looking at personalized health was heart health was very big. Um, And an interesting side note to that was just um, someone pointed out that heart health is even popular among younger generations, which is something that we really haven't seen until someone mentioned that this year, that the 18 to 39-ish year age group um, are very interested in heart health. That's so fascinating that they're becoming more interested in their heart. That's something you typically associate with older generations. Exactly, exactly. And part of that, I think, is also, you know, the younger ones are, they're very athletic, which, of course, is cardio-related. And so they are very more focused on their heart health. All right, Julie, I'm going to move on to you. We saw sugar reduction quite literally everywhere on the show floor. So we turned this into a macro trend of less is more. People are doing more with their ingredients. How are product developers making more with less? Well, it, it like you said, it's like going into the grocery store and seeing zero sugar products everywhere, lower <laughs> sugar, lower sodium. And even I would even say we were talking to uh, ingredient suppliers about 
the again a, a sort of a sustainability or a carbon footprint uh less is more ingredients um we saw those uh, primarily it was there was a lot of zero sugar and and uh lower sodium uh type of raw materials or ingredients that people are putting in products the types of sweetener alternatives for example to lower the sugar ranged from ingredients that were really formatted as syrups uh saw a lot of fruit concentrates even honey they were all sort of doubling down on this promise of less is more um it to an exhibitor most folks showing new ingredients on the show floor just said this is one of the top dietary lifestyles right now is the lowered sugar so i think that's why we saw that so much contribute to this big trend. But on the other hand, um, we're also talking, when we talk about less is more, we're also talking about what David Banks from Bell Flavors and Fragrances uh, kind of really summarized really nicely was that um, supply chain issues could be another reason why food manufacturers are looking to put this less is more approach into ingredient use and the substitutes that they use. And he used as an example, eggs where the pricing went nuts this last year. And so it made it a a super expensive ingredient to use. And yet you need eggs for as binders and for taste and uh, lots of other things. So he was really talking about it as a future proofing method to try to identify all sorts of ingredients that can do more, but you're using less of the ingredient to address those supply chain issues. I remember attending one of Ardent Mills presentations about their eggless cake. Right, right. And, you know, and this kind of touches a little bit too on the sustainability trend, which is obviously the almost the macro of macro trends at this <laughs> point. But um, I know that you visited a lot of people, Emily, where we un- understood that this year's sustainability trend was about getting more creative. Yeah. So sustainability now isn't just about necessarily lowering your carbon footprint or being less wasteful, but how can we get creative with our solution so we're still making a product people want to buy and making it taste delicious? So I saw on the floor a lot of precision fermentation being used. This is the process of using bioreactors and microbial hosts to make ingredients, and it typically has higher yields with higher purity. So you don't have to use as much starting material and you get a lot more ingredients which I think everyone wants, that kind of that less is more thing. Wacker Chemical Corporation is using this for their plant-based cysteines. Everything they do is plant-based, which really sets them apart. They're not having to source their materials from animal feathers or hair. They're fermenting everything. In addition, we also saw upcycling is still a big trend. I saw that specifically in the startup pavilion. There were two specifically that I wanted to call out. The first was renewable mills. They were doing baking mixes using upcycled ingredients such as, you know, brownie mixes, cookie mixes, things like that. And the other one that I thought was really interesting was Krill Arctic Foods, and they were selling krill meat, something I'd never heard of. But he said it's a completely sustainable food chain because 
we eat the krill meat. The leftover shells are used to make animal feed and it doesn't waste any water. So I thought that was a fascinating idea. Yeah, you know, and I didn't get a chance to try those, but it reminds me of our fourth trend about familiar forward flavors. Obviously, I'm not familiar with krill, but um, <laughs> what kind of familiar forward flavors uh, did you see out on the floor? Well, I will say krill tastes like shrimp. Oh, so <laughs> so that's something familiar that people can latch on to, which is what this trend is really all about. It's something that Sally Aaron over at Sweden called one foot in the familiar. So you take one familiar ingredient that people know and love and one maybe more experimental ingredient and put them together to create a new experience. So I spent a lot of time with Blue California, that's Sweden's uh, sister company. And they did a very similar thing where they're experimenting with exotic flavors, but still having that taste of home for people who want to be a bit more explorative with their flavors, but aren't quite ready to take that dive yet. Tropical is still a huge trend right now. The top flavors that we saw at custom flavors were guava, papaya, and mango. And the last part of that is this concept of nostalgia, which food technology actually wrote about last year. Um, nostalgia is coming back. Everyone wants old school flavors. And also at Bell Flavors and Fragrances, they showed us a pizza bagel that was based on a Cubano, which I thought was very delicious and such a fun new take on this bagel bite that we all know from growing up. What was your uh, favorite sample of the show? I think my favorite comes from the Startup Pavilion. It was from Gallivant Foods. And it was this very nice young woman making Indian style ice creams. And the one that I tried tasted exactly like a mango lassi. And I cannot wait to see that in stores. Mm. <laughs> I also, I had a favorite too. It was um, Ingredion had these unbelievable, they called them palettas. So they're like little gourmet popsicles. Uh, they were reduced sugar and they had a couple different flavors, but I love this hibiscus flavored paletta and they sprinkled a spicy cricket powder on it. It was, Ooh. it was delicious. <laughs> Linda, what, what was your favorite? So my favorite, I'm going to throw in a little one. Every year, though, I do always have to get my chocolate fix from Blommer and get my chocolate ice cream bar. <laughs> so that's that's always my constant. But this year also, um, IMCD had a brioche that um, had an egg replacer in it, um, so the egg and butter replacer in it. And the flavor and texture, I was truly amazed by, just blown away how good it was. Um, so just showing you again how these ingredient companies are just stepping up in innovation. Julie, Linda, thank you so much for talking. And I can't wait to cover next year's show with you guys. Yes. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Sam. Julie Larson Brisher is Food Technology's Science and Technology Editor. Emily Little is an Associate Editor. And Linda Milo Orr is a Contributing Editor. You can check out all the highlights from the 2023 IFT First Annual Event and Expo in our September issue. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor. Music. 
Consumers across the globe are looking for more heat and spice in their meat, snacks, and seasoning blends. But what type of heat and which spices specifically are people craving? The What's Hot and What's Not report from Kelsac is a free, comprehensive look at the hot and spicy flavor trends with actionable insights to inform the development of your hot and spicy creations. Visit kelsac.com slash hot or not and download the free report today. Once again, that's kelsac.com slash hot or not. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. Cultivated meat, also known as cell-cultured or cell-based, has come a long way since 2013 when Mark Post held a tasting of his cultivated beef burger in London. Fast forward to this past June when two companies, Eat Just Incorporated and Upside Foods, were given regulatory clearance to sell their cultivated chicken in the United States. Food Technologies Deputy Managing Editor Kelly Hensel caught up with Josh Tetrick, CEO and co-founder of Eat Just, to talk about this unprecedented accomplishment, as well as the uphill battle all cultivated meat companies still face to make a dent in the traditional animal agriculture industry. Thanks for joining me today, Josh. So back in May, you were speaking at the Qatar Economic Forum, and you mentioned that Good Meats Cultivated Chicken is being sold in a butcher shop in Singapore. I know since then that it's also debuted at Jose Andres' restaurant in Washington, D.C. So obviously, both of these instances are very historical, given that, you know, it's the first time cultivated meat has been sold anywhere in the world. But I think there's also, it becomes obvious that there's a long way to go in terms of the scale and the reach that you guys want to achieve. But I was wondering, despite that limited distribution that you've had so far, what have some of the key learnings been from from those experiences? We have learned that, thankfully, people think it tastes like chicken. We've learned that people are really curious, even more so than we thought about the process. We've learned that young people under the age of 30 could care less if their meat is made in a stainless steel vessel. They almost think it's like odd that it would be odd. And we've learned that scaling cultivated meat is going to be extremely hard. Um, And we're at, you know, an interesting place as a company in that, you know, a lot of the milestones that we were looking at years ago uh, in wanting to achieve getting regulatory approval first in the world, getting FDA approval, getting USDA approval, selling in the United States, cell density, media costs, check, 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 check. We've done it. But the biggest one is before us. And that is how do you truly scale cultivated meat production? And our definition of scale, which might be different than how other companies define it, is not hundreds of thousands of pounds. It's tens of millions of pounds really just think sufficient scale for national distribution across the U.S. in the way just a regular person thinks of it. And that's going to require hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. It's going to require solving a lot of engineering uh, challenges, um, and it's going to require a lot of time. And it is uh, without question uncertain whether we'll be able to do it mentioned the the obvious need for capital investment in your talk at the Qatar Economic Forum. And I was wondering, you know, obviously 
that was back in May and you guys have, um, you're in Singapore and you're in the United States now in a restaurant. Have those introductions drawn enough attention to make a difference in terms of capital investment thus far? Are you seeing a positive trajectory, I guess? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit of interest, but I would I would distinguish millions, tens of millions from many hundreds of millions. And it's the many hundreds of millions that's required to build out a large scale facility. That's what that is really what is required. And that's to come. Now, I was curious about why did you, the company, decide to launch in the United States via food service, obviously at a restaurant run by Jose Andres, who's obviously really well known, and this is something that he's passionate about, as opposed to going through retail channels in Singapore? What was the strategy there? There are two reasons. One is both in Singapore and in the United States, we've wanted to partner with uh, both locally renowned chefs and globally renowned chefs. So even the room that I'm speaking to you in now is named Mr. Luz, who is a locally renowned chef in Singapore. He runs a hawker stand called Mr. Luz. He makes a really good Chinese chicken curry rice, which he's been selling for 50 years. And obviously, Jose Andres is a bit more well-known. Um, and so that's one reason. And the second reason is retail just doesn't make sense from a capacity perspective because it'd be a bit odd to like be in one store once a week. So it's just, that'd be goofy. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So is the plan to then kind of, obviously this is going to take a while, like you said, it's going to take time to kind of stay in slowly increase capacity at, at restaurants, at food service locations with Jose perhaps, or other, other, you know, well-known establishments. What's the like five-year, 10-year plan? I think there are, you could separate this into like four different courses, like to use a food analogy, but we'll start off with the appetizer. Like the appetizer is just, you can taste it in the lab. And we've been doing that for years and other companies do a great job of that, right? Cultivated meat is real, right? It's there. It's in the lab. You can try it. It tastes nice, right? First course is actually getting approval and selling for the first time in the world in Singapore. Small volumes, but you know what? You need to put out your credit card to buy it. It's in a commercial setting, right? There's actually a commercial transaction happening there. Makes it a lot more real, right? Third course, no offense to Singapore, is to do it in the world's largest economy because that amps up the credibility of this with one of the most globally renowned chefs in the world. Again, still small. Fourth course, I'm actually, I'm going to have five courses to this. Fourth course is actually making tens of millions of pounds of it. And to make tens of millions of pounds of it, we need to allocate hundreds of millions of dollars. And that'll be a two to five year project, depending on how good we are, to actually get a large scale facility stood up and running. Final course, hopefully before I die, <laughs> is that the vast majority of the meat that's consumed in the world doesn't require the slaughter of a single animal. I love that analogy. It works. Yeah. So in out of curiosity, is is chicken, you started with chicken. Is there a reason that you guys decided to go with chicken as opposed to beef? I'm sure there is. What 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 was that you know decision like? 
You know, it, there's two reasons. One is chicken is the most consumed animal um, meat product. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, pork is a close second and then beef. And then the second was it just happened really pretty randomly that the chicken cell lines that we have, we had the, a particular chicken cell was just performing the best. So we said, all right, let's go with it. But we're we're as passionate about beef. We have a number of beef cell lines. We've scaled up uh, one of them and a thousand liters. We are um, in a place where we're going to submit our beef application to uh, regulatory authorities somewhere before the end of the year. So you should really think of the, for the most part, the infrastructure that you're building for chicken is relevant for beef, is relevant for pork. It almost would be like uh, if it was an electric car manufacturing facility. Most of that infrastructure is relevant whether you're doing a sedan or a sports car. There's some tweaks with the feed, with the, but much of it is 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 pretty similar. You kind of talked about um, where you guys are headed in the next five years, ten years. I'm I'm just thinking back to like 2013 when Mark Post introduced that really expensive burger that he had a tasting of in London. And, and cultivated meat has come so far so quickly, it seems like, but obviously there's this big hurdle um, in terms of investment and, and infrastructure. Where do you hope, not just, you know, you guys, but in general, cultivated meat to be and its impact to have by like 2030? Before I answer that, I would just say that cultivated meat um should absolutely be looked at and no one should ever join a cultivated meat company or start one if you are not fully prepared for a lifetime project. So I'll just start there. Um, and 2030 is too short, <laughs> right? So you really have to think in terms of like lifetimes and even honestly past your lifetime with cultivated meat. If you didn't, you wouldn't even do it. Right, because that's how long term it really is. Um, twenty thirty, I could see our company and other companies having one or more facilities up, producing tens of millions of pounds of product with national distribution by two thousand thirty. Still, much less than one percent. Yeah, all the meat consumed in the world, but another step right towards people i think um what's really hard for i think all of us to wrap our brains around is that you know when the cell phone was first introduced in the mid 40s right it was this giant cell phone and everyone made fun of it and and that was you know 70 or so years ago that's how long it's taken you know for the cell phone to be ubiquitous and it's still not owned by every person in the world we get we get used to these things very quickly and i think the same thing at some point will happen with cultivated meat i love that i love that um comparison because you're right i think we lose track of how long some of these other technologies were actually around before they were ubiquitous you know a friend of mine might say i i read this person criticizing cultivated meat and they said that the costs are way too high right now and the technology is going to have difficulty being scaled and it's not necessarily going to happen in the next decade. <laughs> well, answer, that's all true. Yeah, exactly. Sounds pretty right to me. 
But yeah. you, what you can, you can hear that and just be like, all right, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> right. You know, give up. Okay. <laughs> right. or, or you can hear that and say, okay, let's try to as best we can increase the probability that we're able to get it done, knowing that we're never, ever going to get to hundred percent. Right. right. But we can make it more likely. And that's, um, that's, that's a really good thing. Josh Tetrick is the co-founder and CEO of Eat Just, the maker of good meat cultivated chicken. He's been named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, Inc.'s 35 Under 35, and Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40. Learn more about cultivated meat and its potential to help the food industry reduce its carbon footprint in the September issue of Food Technology. Phenology, the study of how weather patterns impact plant growth, isn't on the radar for many food scientists. But as climate change begins to impact the price, quality, and availability of commodity crops and food ingredients, agricultural consultant Martha Montoya says that needs to change. I recently spoke to her about what an understanding of phenology might mean to a resilient global food system. Let's start just by basically explaining what phenology is and why do you think that it's going to become more important for the food system in the coming years? Phenology is really is the really in-depth understanding of the different uh, patterns of the plant or whatever that is, even animals, the path of development from the beginning till the time that we're going to do something with that. So um, I, the way I always explain it in a simple way to regular human beings in my industry is um, when a baby is in the tummy of a lady, it has nine months and you have nine months to take care of that baby, you know, the mother and that baby to make sure that that baby comes out healthy, as healthy as you can. Same thing here. Every single uh, living uh, element requires a very well taken care of. And we need to understand that the weather patterns change when those developments are happening and we need to make sure we apply and we are in tune with what's going on to make sure that by the end of the the, the, the crop or the season, we're able to um, um, have a good outcome of it. You and your co-authors lay out some of the implications in looking at the phenology data now in terms of how climate change is potentially impacting crops. You talk about specific crops like mangoes, grapes, papayas. Paint a picture of what's going on right now, what the implications of all of this are. Are there other staple crops, for example, that are particularly sensitive to climate change and how are they being impacted? Climate change is now starting to impact the world. So we need to kind of understand faster the phenological systems of every single thing we do. And when I say that is from different angles. Yes, in the farming area, we need to understand to manage better the crops. But on the scientific side of it, 
as we're developing, as we're inventing new products or new ingredients or new combinations for the world, understanding the phenological phases of that basic ingredient, which tends to be 60, 70% of something, is going to impact whether that is a sustainable mm -hmm. future product. Mm -hmm. And by understanding that and you start creating your own models where you put your ingredient or your plant of that ingredient in a region and analyze the phenological phase um, trend for the last 20, 30, 40 years, you can see whether the best region to source that, to plant that, to develop that is this in order to have 10, 15, 20 years of that raw material for your cereal for your um, um, drink and so on and so forth. That I think is the biggest breakthrough that we can have of understanding phenological phase. Because if you ask me, it impacts anywhere from the wheat all the way to the to the, the vanilla uh, element and uh, where, where everything grows. Are there other examples of the kinds of preemptive decisions that uh, food producers uh, can be making using this data? In the past, we always said, okay, we have X ingredient for this Y product in this Z region. And let me find my supplier who's going to get me that Z product in that, in that Z region, and I'm going to trust it. I'm starting to hear more the buying the corporate world saying, I do trust my supplier, but I'm seeing that sometimes we're short, sometimes we don't have, sometimes there's no supply. I can stop my production line. So by understanding this, you're going to have, I, I call it the, the, excuse me, the Uber effect, the destination, origin and destination. You need everyone now to understand both and it's not about how much mo more money i'm going to make here finding you the ingredient or how much money i'm going to not pay you for getting me the ingredient is are we going to have ingredients one of the things that you brought up is that the impact of these changing climate zones is is not consistent and th there may be negative impacts in some areas there may be positive impacts in other areas things that might grow in those areas that previously did not. So how can we capitalize on these opportunities? Finally, you're starting to see phenological phases as part of, if not as the most important sustainability element for the future. I am developing this. I'm inventing this. I'm whatever this. 20 years from now, would I have the ingredient? Would I have the crop? Would I have the cattle? I am hoping that, and it's starting to you see that, that as there are more people understanding this phenological phase and from all levels, A, we're going to accomplish the sustainable world, which is important. B, we're going to source and grow in the native regions where products should be grown. And third, we're going to be able to sustain the food supply chain around the world. What's the role of technology in this? So how, how do you see tools like satellite imaging, Internet of Things, uh, artificial intelligence? How, how do those tools stand to help us elevate our game 
in terms of both the quality and the quantity of data we can collect? They all are important for different reasons. Uh, when you have a satellite analyzing the top, which cannot go all the way down to the ground, but it's giving you like a famous 30 feet view, what's going on and gives you a heavy uh, lot of information from the top. When you go to the IoT, now it's giving me specifically to my region specific, okay? So all that data is, <laughs> people should think now that your life in this industry is no longer one screen, but three or four screens. What is currently happening in terms of genetic innovations, uh, selective breeding? I would think that there's gotta be a lot of crops that we're gonna have to really be thinking about, things like drought resistance, uh, in, in, in heat resistance. Uh, talk a little bit about some examples of work that's going on in that area. That is a good one. I'll give you one interesting uh, fact. I was in Vashon Island, Washington State. I happened to be there. Um, and uh, as I was getting on the ferry, I uh, had the wonderful privilege of talking with this scientist whose grandfather started one of the first strawberry um plants in that island okay and uh, she was telling me the story she gave me the address of the uh of the farm when i visited and i'm like oh my god almost 100 years ago that that's the beginning of because the northern west uh, northern uh, western region is known for the development of the blueberries and plants the, the original seeds and so i was asking her well how's today with what as it was 100 years ago. And she said, well, we don't have as much rain as we used to. Uh, so our our berries are now much less uh, intense of flavor because there's not enough this and that. So all that to come back and say, yes, we have to develop the new um, everything as we move uh, because it's not us, it's the world has changed and we have to develop these new resistant to heat and resistant to plagues. So as these growing patterns shift and, and, and the season shift and the location shift, what are some of the economic considerations of all this? Surely there's going to be winners and losers. There's probably going to be implications in terms of the uh, ingredient costs of some of these crops. Uh, what should we be anticipating there? There are two ways of looking at it. One is from the, I am a scientist, and one is I'm the business person within the same corporation or the same company, or I'm a small business and and I, and, and I still have the two hats, is that the implications are that you do have to start asking the question to your suppliers. You cannot stop anymore. At, I'm going to come up with, do you have an ingredient? Do you have this? But the next question is, how good of your source is going to be if I develop this in the long term? How good is this source? How long is this source? How good the phenological phase? Are you understanding the phenological phases of what you're sourcing? Because I need to know that five, 10 years from now, I'm going to have this. Is your new variety, are your new varieties that you just presented to me, that the new things that are presenting to me, are they phenologically attached to, to data? So I can see that in five, 10, 20 years from now, as I develop this for me, my company, my corporation, 
it's going to be a long, long-term uh, return of my time as a researcher, investment as a company, and definitely for Earth. We can keep planting where we should not be planting. Martha, when you look at the range of stakeholders that that all have a vested interest in this, what are the biggest lingering knowledge gaps? And what are the resources that people should be tapping into uh, in order to educate themselves on this? I say the biggest gap of knowledge is between the scientist researcher and the farm. Scientific world has this panel thinking that I just need this to create that without understanding the bigger picture out there that you might think this and might solve it these five, 10 years um, by researching this, but on the long run, you just put it on the shelf because the sourcing is not going to happen. So I would say the the new scientists, and I'm hoping the young new scientist world um, uh, will start understanding that they have to look beyond the element or the product or the thinking, but am I going to be able to have this in the future? Martha Montoya is CEO of AgTools, a global agriculture consultancy, and a current member of IFT's board of directors. You can read the dialogue essay she co-authored on phenology in the September issue of Food Technology. IFT members can also engage directly on the topic through our member discussion platform, IFT Connect. Thank you to Kelsac, sponsor of this episode of Omnivore. Get the What's Hot and What's Not report from Kelsac. Visit kelsac.com slash hot or not and download the free report today. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.